Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. When God gives us light, knowledge, insight, His Word, and we refuse to respond to it, well, He is under no obligation to give us further light, to take us any deeper, to to, to continue on with us. In fact, isn't that what we're told by John, that this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, the light has come into the world, but men love darkness more than the light. As we finish up chapter 21 in the Gospel of Matthew, we start a new message Pastor Sam entitled, The Savior Rejected. Taking up in verse 23, we see Jesus' authority questioned, and we read two more parables from our Lord, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked vine dressers. So let's listen in. Matthew 21, starting at verse 23. The title of our message, The Savior Rejected. There's a story told that when they were building the temple there in Jerusalem, they were quarrying the rocks some distance away, and and then they would send them up and they would be fitted together there on the Temple Mount. And at one point, a huge stone arrived and they couldn't really find its place. It didn't really seem to fit, so they rolled it off the hill and it kind of lay there for a while, the weeds and the grass growing over it. And then they came almost to the completion of the temple and they were looking for the cornerstone. They couldn't find it. They sent word down to the quarry, hey, send up the cornerstone. They said, man, we sent that thing up a long time ago. And then someone remembered, hey, what about that stone that came and we couldn't find its place and we we cast it aside? Well, they went down and sure enough, the stone which the builders had rejected, it was the chief cornerstone. Now that's not just a story, it's a prophecy and it is a picture of our Lord and Savior. We'll see that here in the passage. But basically what happens as we jump into our study here in Matthew 21, picking up at verse 23, is Jesus' authority is being questioned by the authorities. Now you need to know that their question is perfectly legitimate. In fact, the guys who come to him, and maybe we should read a bit and then I'll explain it to you. When he came into the temple, verse 23, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? you got to know the chief priests and the scribes were a part of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was charged with testing the prophets and the prophecies that came to Jerusalem and to the people of God. When someone came saying, thus says the Lord, the law of Moses had laid out some very clear tests. So you could determine, is this guy really speaking for the Lord? One of the tests was 100% accuracy 100% of the time. So if anyone came saying, thus says the Lord, and the thing didn't come to pass, well, they were a false prophet. The penalty wasn't a slap on the hands. It was a capital crime. They would stone them to death for false prophecy. So you've got to know that when these guys come with the question, though it is absolutely legitimate to ask, Because they had hardened their hearts against the Lord. Because they'd already decided we will not follow or acknowledge him as the Lord. Well, they're doing all they can to ensnare and reject the Lord. Now, the criteria, as I already mentioned, was, well, if it didn't come to pass, they were a false prophet. The Lord says, if they speak presumptuously in my name, saying, thus says the Lord. And well, the Lord hadn't spoken to him. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, and it's worth looking at chapter 23, not right now, but make a mental note or jot it down if you're a note taker. Jeremiah 23, the Lord said, 
if they had stood in my counsel, they would have declared my word and they would have turned my people from their sins. You see, that was another test of a true prophet. They didn't just say, hey, here's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen. They always had a reason for prophesying. And basically, it was to turn people's hearts back to the Lord. When we studied through Revelation, our numbers swelled. That always happens. A lot of people interested in the things of the end times, but not always for the right reasons. Why is that book given to us in the first place? That we could see the days in which we're living and turn our hearts wholeheartedly back to the Lord. And if we study it because we're well interested in it or amazed by it, but it doesn't transform us in any way, well, we've actually failed to let it work as God intended. Now, if this question were rightfully motivated, if they simply were trying to find out who are you and who sent you and, hey, how, by the way, are you doing these radical and wonderful things? Well, that would have been a good thing. But Jesus can do something none of us can do, and that's read hearts and read motivations. I know some of you think you can read motivations. You think you know what's going on inside of other people. You know what the Bible says about that? It says that our own hearts are so desperately and deceitfully wicked, we can't even know them. We're not even sure about us. How can we judge one another? But here's what's going on. These guys are asking, by what authority? What, who gave you the right? Who gave you the might? To do these things, who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered them and said to them, and it almost sounds at first reading like he's being evasive, but he's not at all. He actually answers their question in the context of his question. He says, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, I have a question for you. And he says, if you'll answer it, well, here's my promise. I'll tell you all you want to know. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? The nature of the question is simple. He's saying, was John doing his own thing or was he doing God's thing? When he came out in the wilderness saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, had God sent him or was that just John's idea? Well, if you're familiar with John the Baptist at all, well, it's important. He was born miraculously. We looked at it in our Christmas service. His father was a priest, Zacharias, serving as a priest. That means John the Baptist was a priest. He was not an outsider. He was an insider. And so when he went outside and began to preach repentance, even calling his peers and his mentors to repentance, well, people took notice. And everybody understood that, well, there was a special call on this guy's life. I mean, he was, he was named before he was born. He was prophesied over before he was born. And here he is fulfilling those prophecies. And so basically, the question is, was John working for God or was he working for himself? Well, they reasoned among themselves, verse 25, the latter part there, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, why did you not believe him? Well, that's true. If we say, well, God sent him, then he's going to say, well, why don't you believe him? In fact, what was John's testimony concerning Jesus? There is one coming after me so much greater than me that I'm not even worthy to unloose the latchet of his shoe. But even more than that, John, not long after Jesus' baptism, I believe the next day it says in John's gospel, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That was John's testimony, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now, Jesus would later testify himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John says he's the Lamb of God. Jesus says he's the good shepherd watching over the lambs of God. Both are true. But John didn't just identify Jesus as the Lamb of God. He identifies him as the Son of God. And I have seen and testified, he says at the very, in that very same passage, at the very end of the chapter, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Did they know John the Baptist had identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world? Absolutely. Did they know that he had declared him to be the Son of God? Absolutely. And so what they say is, hey, if we say he's from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet, and rightly so. You know, the scripture says the fear of man brings a snare. And what's happening here is these guys are really on trial before the Lord. Their integrity is being tried. Their honesty is being tried. And they're coming up short in both areas. They're not people of integrity. They're not people of honesty. They're hypocrites. And when we get to chapter 23, Jesus, who we usually perceive as being also gracious in all situations, man, he just lays into them. And you can read ahead. Don't do it now, but do it later today. Anyway, if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all count John as a prophet. So Jesus said to them, we do not know. Or they answered Jesus, excuse me, saying we do not know. Now that was absolutely false. They knew John was sent from God. And they knew John's testimony of Jesus. And basically they're saying, well, we really don't know where he's from. Now get the irony in this. What was their official job? To test the prophets. What's John? He's a prophet. The law and the prophets were unto John. That's the testimony of Scripture. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets, though we read of him in the New Testament. He is the last of that dispensation. And their job was to test them. And had they? I think so. But for fear of man, well, they wouldn't deal with John, and for fear of man, they didn't immediately deal with Jesus. So Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. There's a principle there, and that is that when God gives us light, knowledge, insight, His Word, and we refuse to respond to it, well, He is under no obligation to give us further light, to take us any deeper, to, to, to continue on with us. In fact, isn't that what... We're told by John that this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. The light has come into the world. But men love darkness more than the light. Neither would they come to the light lest their deeds be exposed as evil. When men refuse the light and turn from the light and shut their eyes to the light, God can easily say, well, then that's it. I'm not going to tell you anymore. If you won't be honest with what you've already discovered... If you won't face the facts, then, well, what good will it do for me to show you more? Now, look at Matthew 13 for just a second, because you've got to see that all this was just and right. I don't want anybody to think, even for a moment, that Jesus is unjust and not going further and deeper with these guys. In Matthew 13, picking up at verse 14, he says, The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive, for the heart of this people has grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so I should heal them. Now get it, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, their hearts had grown dull. That was their response to the light given. And he's saying, what was his plan and his purpose? He wanted them to turn. He wanted to touch them. He wanted to heal them. He wanted to free them from their sin. 
Well, back to Matthew 21 then. Jesus follows all of this with a parable. We know it as the parable of the two sons. And he doesn't let them off the hook. He's got them right there. They've kind of questioned him. He's exposed them. And then he says, what do you think? I like how he does that. You know, Before they could wander away, before they could scatter, before they could regroup, he just says, hey, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Now, you got to know these guys are getting paranoid and they probably had a real quick little meeting to say, well, I don't know, do you think it's a trick question or what do you think? But the bottom line is it's not a trick question, it's just an illustration and he's trying to point out exactly what's happening there at the moment. The two sons, the first says no and then says, well, man, that was wrong. I should go do what dad asked. The second son, oh, you can count on me. I'm there for you. I'll do it for sure. But then he wanders away and doesn't do. And I'd like to suggest to you, before we see Jesus' application, that there's a very practical application for us today. Because each and every one of us, either right now or in the recent past, have fit into one of these two categories. You've either been guilty of saying, no way, Lord. Well, maybe you never say it like that. It's, please, Lord, don't make me do that, you know. I'll forgive anyone, but not that one person. Or I'll give up anything, but not sugar. Or I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do anything you want, Lord, but not that one thing. And if, in fact, you're saying anything but, you're saying, no, I won't. And we may not see ourselves as stubborn and rebellious, but that's how God sees us. You see... He has provided so much. We'll see that in the next parable. He has provided perfectly for us so that we can, well, experience Him in the fullest and be as fruitful for Him as possible. And, and when we say no, well, we're just hindering that work God wants to do in and through us. There are some of us, though, who are more religious than others. We always say yes to the Lord. But if the truth be told, we don't always follow through and do. And James warns us to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. It's not enough to agree with the will of the Lord. We need to be doers of the will of the Lord. So I'll leave it for you to figure out which category you're in. Jesus is saying, which of these sons did the will of the Father? There's another question. Was there any son who ever did the will of the Father perfectly? And the answer is only one. And that was Jesus. You see, he said yes, and he did. He said yes, and he did. But all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all been guilty of being either the first or the second son. And maybe you've been both. Maybe you were the rebellious one who said, no way, and then finally, yes way, I'll do it. And then you started doing it, and I'll do it, I'll do it. But then you come to that point where you realize, I've really stopped doing the things that God instructed me to do. Maybe you're not in any kind of gross sin, or you're not blowing it completely. You just stop doing the fundamental things that got you here in the first place. But in any case, well, they answered him and they said the first, which did the will of the father? Of course, the one who said no, but yet went and did it. Jesus says, and you got to know this was a jaw dropper. Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. I'm thinking everybody standing around their jaws on the ground from this one, you see. Because it's like tax collectors and harlots getting in before the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. That'd be like today, well, no, I can't, I don't want to pick anybody that we know that's famous and a Christian, especially a faithful one, and I want to pick anyone who I don't like, because that's even worse. 
But, but let's just say that the most highly regarded and respected group of Christians on the planet. And Jesus is confronting them and we're listening in and we're kind of watching the scene. And he says, by the way, all the drug pushers and all the you know, convicts and all the, the, you know, the harlots and all that, they're all going to get into heaven before you do. What? We think, are you kidding me? Those are the religious people. Those are the, those are the good people. How are the bad people going to get in? Well, it's real easy, see. John came to you, he says in verse 32, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. What's he telling us? Listen, it's harder for religious people to get saved than anyone else on the planet. And if you have grown up your entire life in the church and you always consider yourself a Christian, I'm not saying you're not. All I'm saying is the Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Be sure you're in the faith. Here's why. It's easy if you've always been a good person, if you've mostly done the right thing, to think, well, I, I must be in the Lord. I mean, look at all the things I haven't done and look at all the good I have done. But ultimately, it comes down to this. You've still sinned against a holy God. And if you're thinking because you're better than most, you're going to be received or accepted. You're not. You see, I think most people who come off the streets into a church, they know that they're in trouble. They know they've got needs. That's why we don't spend a lot of time pointing the finger and banging the pulpit. Well, it would break. It's, it's wimpy. But, but we don't do a lot of that stuff yelling at you because, well, you already know you're a guilty sinner. You're looking for good news, not bad news. And you're in need of good news. If you don't know you're a sinner, well, let me give you the bad news. You are a sinner. You have committed many sins against the Lord. And the good news is he is a gracious and merciful and forgiving God. He wants to have a relationship with you. But, but you need to put yourself in the category of those who acknowledge, yeah, I'm a sinner. Maybe and hope not. Maybe you've never been a harlot or even worse, a tax collector. But, but well, he puts them together in the passage, not me. But whatever you've done, it's enough to nail Jesus to the cross, you see. You and I have sinned against the holy God. And, and so he's saying to them, to the religious, to the establishment, to these hypocrites. And that's exactly what he calls them in chapter 23. When we get there, I believe the title of the message is How to Be Religious and Still Go to Hell. And uh, that's really what they demonstrate to us. They were the most religious people that ever walked the planet. And yet Jesus says, man, not much hope for you guys. No, there was some hope and some did repent. But the common sinners and the common people, they heard Jesus gladly. Why? He brought good news. Here another parable. And this is kind of a unique parable in that ordinarily you need to know as you study through parables in Scripture, a parable is meant to have one central core meaning. There's one message. It's an illustration trying to make clear something that well, we'd otherwise struggle with. A heavenly thought with a taught to us through a, an earthly story. But this parable, well, it takes the form more of an allegory. And, and here's the difference. In an allegory, there's lots of parallels. There's lots of things representing other things. In a, in a parable, well, really not usually the case. Now, Jesus calls it a parable, and I don't want to argue with our Lord. I think, though, if for his purposes, he says, let me tell you a little story. They would have understood it that way. But for our purposes, we're going to see it is an allegory. And by the time he gets to the end, well... Even those religious leaders realized it was not just a story, not just a parable. It was, in fact, an allegory. Here, another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. Verse 33. 
You can see everything except the verse. And set a hedge about it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. And when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. He sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize the inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Now get this. As Jesus goes through these few verses and in this short story, he deals with Israel's past, the immediate present, and then the future. Hear the parable. There was a certain landowner, planted a vineyard, set a hedge, dug a wine press, built a tower, leased it to vine dressers. The owner of that vineyard, it's our Lord, you see. It's speaking of God. And you'll see this oh so clearly. And, and there's something practical for us in this. I want you to see that when God sends men to produce, he gives them everything they need to do it. That's true for us, you see. Everything we need to accomplish his plan and purpose for our life, he has already made available to us. So he plants the vineyard. He sets the hedge. That would be a bunch of thorns and thorn bushes to keep out the animals that might destroy the vines or thieves who would come in to steal the fruit. He dug a wine press. They'd basically have two sections. There would be one higher than the other. They'd smash, smash the grapes in the higher one and the juice would flow down into the lower. And then it says he built a tower. That would simply be a place to, to rest and to guard, to watch from. He leased it to vine dressers. Now in this story, the Lord is in fact the landowner. And the, the, the uh, vineyard itself, it's Israel. Now they would have known that. Isaiah chapter 5, I think verses 1 through 7, make it just perfectly clear. They were so familiar with it. But verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of of Israel. That's Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So here's the picture. The Lord is the landowner. Israel is the vineyard. Those he leases it out to, those who become stewards of his people, well, they're the spiritual leaders he's addressing then and there. And then it says, when vintage time came, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. The purpose of the planting is always the same. God wants fruit. Fruit from Israel, fruit from the church. Fruit from them, fruit from us. The fruit he's looking for, of course, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Because God has loved us with the perfect love. He just wants us to reciprocate. And he makes that clear by telling us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And so he sends his servants. Those servants, we'll find, would be the prophets that he sent to them. And they took the servants, they beat one, they killed one, and they stoned another. Now this is a rough summary of how they dealt with the prophets in general. The true prophets of God, that is. When God sent his prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, others, saying, hey, thus says the Lord, destruction's coming, judgment's coming. Well, they don't really like that message, you see. But others came saying, thus says the Lord, God's not going to judge you. God's not going to destroy you. And even as there were false prophets in that day, there are false prophets in this day. There are people saying, oh, God doesn't care how you live. It's all a spiritual thing. As long as you love God and you go to church and you're a good person, 
No, that's not true. God does care how we live. Our belief has got to affect and, and govern our behavior. How we, what we believe has to determine how we behave. And when people behave in a way that God says is an abomination and pastors stand in pulpits and say, oh, God doesn't mind. Don't know. That's just, that was just Paul. He was sort of weird. No, listen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And when Paul says, thus says the Lord, he's speaking for God. And when the Old Testament says, thus says the Lord, they were speaking for God. 2 Timothy 4.3 contains a prediction and a warning. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Well, that time is here, folks. And to see that, all you have to do is listen to what some people who pretend to speak for the Lord have to say. And the world is gobbling it up because the world has itching ears. But so did the scribes and Pharisees who challenged Jesus. They didn't want to hear from the Lord. They only wanted to hear what made them feel better and what did not threaten their way of life. And this led them to the murder of Jesus Christ. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.